one singing this evening. The beats sitting at home, doing nothing. What a wonderful thing it is to sing to the Lord God who has saved us. First Peter chapter four. together one more time, actually. This is never a good start when you're out of sorts. First Peter chapter 4, I read the scriptures already. We have been considering what it is like as a Christian as we navigate through this world, as we navigate through sufferings, we navigate through tribulations, we go through trials. Peter once again begins with, Beloved, do not be surprised. We ought not to be surprised at fiery ordeals among us, which come upon us for our testing. There's a reason for these things. A reason indeed, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Let me pray one more time. Father, come before you in the name of your son Jesus Christ I look for the power of the Holy Spirit at this time I pray O God that you would help me to be faithful to your text and that I would preach and teach your word clearly and that you would give ears to hear this night and hearts pliable to change in Jesus name amen so fiery ordeals coming upon us For our testing, we can all relate to this, all of us. And when we do go through these things, as verse 12 tells us, we are sharing in the sufferings of Christ, reviled for the name of Christ, suffering as a Christian, suffering according to the will of God. A fiery ordeal doesn't sound pleasant, does it? It sounds like it would burn a bit. It would hurt. And indeed, we understand the trials, tribulations that we go through, indeed are painful. Pain is involved. Often we are surprised by trials that come, are we not? Blindsided trials come out of nowhere. We're just going about our merry way, clicking our heels maybe one day saying, wow, this is, wow, look at this mountaintop. And boom, here comes the trial. Peter says here, do not be surprised or amazed at these trials. That doesn't mean that they'll take us by surprise. They will at times. But we're not to be surprised by these things. These trials are not just the suffering of a broken world. We live in a broken, sin-cursed world, sinful world. We understand that. We've studied that. We see that. But it's not just that. These are more specific as Peter continues to go through his, the text in his writing. Opposition from a world that despises Christ and his followers. We've seen this In John chapter 14, chapter 15, 
about how the world hates Christians because it hates Jesus Christ. And then we see here uh, trials and tribulations as we've been studying this out as well. We're, uh, We're studying the same topics at the same time in two different books. I could not have planned this. I hope some of us see this. And there's always a reason for this when God orchestrates things in such a way. Maybe just to remind us. I don't know. But there's a theme that continues in 1 Peter. One of suffering, one of alienation, and one of persecution. Indeed, we are strangers and pilgrims in this world. We're not to be surprised at these types of trials because they are not strange. What is strange is when someone who professes to be a Christian has no opposition from the world. That is indeed strange. That is what we would call an oxymoron. The oxymoron, we know what that is, honest politician, sober judge. This completely ties in with the message from this morning. In this world, you will have troubles, Jesus says. But thankfully, Jesus encouraged us when he says, take courage, I have overcome the world. He says that in the Gospel of John. That's where we rest in. We rest in who Jesus is, the peace that he gives us, and he has overcome. But it's not strange, trials that come our way, fiery ordeals that came to them as they were suffering persecutions, various forms, and as these things come in our life. It is for our testing. As Proverbs 27, 21 says, the crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold, and each is tested by the praise according to him. If we endure trials, there is a praise that comes with that. Why? Because we are praising God during the trial. It's nothing that we have done when we endure a trial and we come out the other side and we say, wow, I'm glad that is over with. Who got us through that? It was the Lord. He saw us through. Passing through the test. Now what Peter is referring to does not necessarily mean painful physical persecution. Recall what he said in chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. And this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Trials of various kinds. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God uses suffering uses trials to purify his people. Some of us understand that more than others, depending on how long we've been walking with the Lord and the difficulties that he has brought us through. But before God uses a man or uses a woman in a mighty way, he crushes them. He brings them very low. We see that in scripture. We see that in church history. And some of us here can relate to that in our own lives. There's really no use for a prideful person that is not willing to be humbled. These sufferings in 1 Peter of a group of Christians 
that we would consider in a local church are not a sign that God has left, but of his purifying presence. Think about some of you who have been here for a number of years, before I was even in, the back, in the, your mind at all, and what God has done as he continues to purify his church, continues to remove those who would create opposition, remove the lost that will refuse to come to Christ. It's not a sign that God has left, but of his purifying presence. When the Lord removes contentious or those folks on the fringe from the church, he is purifying it. We saw this happen shortly after I first got here. When all of a sudden this thing hit, I don't remember what year it was. And all of a sudden, was it 2020, 2021? I don't even remember. And where we had to do things differently. You all know what I'm talking about. And folks said, I'm not going to go to church anymore. And then they never came back. Then the Lord is pleased also to add to his local church as he sees fit. As he sees fit. And I, I make no... I, I'm not here to gain popularity... I'm not here to make friends, even though many of you are my friends. I'm here to preach the word of God. And if God seeks to sees fit to grow this church by the preaching of his word, amen. Individually, though, fiery ordeals for our testing, for our purifying, for our sanctification, a reminder for us that those in our lives, whether it be family, friends, whoever it is, they're there in our lives for our sanctification. And sometimes we know that more than others, don't we? Sometimes that sanctification isn't all fun and games, is it? Exactly. Refining your faith as well, these fiery ordeals, for our testing, for our purification, for our sanctification, for refining our faith, for growing us in our faith. And verse 13 is, is a contrast to verse 12. Okay, verse 12 again, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange things were, coming to, were happening to you. But, here we go, but a, when you see the word but, okay, we got a contrast here. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. Notice the response we are to have not of shock or amazement, but of one of rejoicing. Why rejoicing? Rejoicing with the privilege of being able to share and participate in the sufferings of Christ. Remember the men in Acts when they suffered for Christ and they had a certain response in Acts chapter 5. <clears throat> oh, where do I start in chapter 5 to give us the context of this is my question this evening. Well, 
Let's see here. I'm not going to go back all the way to verse 1. Let's go to verse 24. Okay, the imprisonment and release. Peter's involved here. They were preaching the word of God, and the folks there did not like it. Verse 25. Someone came and reported to them of chapter 5 of Acts. The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. When they had brought them, they stood before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. What name? Jesus, the name of Jesus. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. That is a text we should have memorized. We should have stamped to our eyelids. We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. Again, just as a, as a practical help for us, look at the responsibility uh, that they are pointing to. Though you who had put him to death by hanging him on a cross, you are guilty. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God had given to, to those who obey him. Let's go to <clears throat> just verse 40 for time's sake. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them, beat them, and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So, here's the response. Here's where I was going. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This did not shut them up. This did not stop them. They said, I have to obey God rather than man. This is the gospel, and you can do what you will to me. I, we are going out again, and they continue to do so. You can't stop the gospel of Jesus Christ. When God says this place is going to be built, it will be built. When God says my word is going forth here, it will go forth there. And no man can stop it. No power can stop it. But here more specifically... As we consider back to Peter, a gateway to possible physical suffering for Christ is suffering because of our allegiance to Christ. So usually when persecution comes, when suffering comes, it doesn't automatically start with physical suffering and murder to a Christian. It can start, oftentimes it starts suffering because of our allegiance to Christ. Some of us have experienced that. Because we are a Christian, because we profess Christ, we have suffered in some way, shape, or form. And a much lower level compared to, obviously, getting beaten and tortured for it. 
But it starts with that, allegiance to Christ. Let us be reminded, though, of what Tom Schreiner says. Suffering for Christ is a cause for joy, but being mistreated because of one's own sins is nothing to brag about. So we consider what we may suffer for. And this section, verse 12 through 19, is the third time Peter told believers that suffering is something they must endure. When we hear such things, it may not move us as it should. After all, we are Americans, right? Land of the free, home of the brave, freedoms we have, all kinds of resources at our disposal. Listen to uh, Daniel Doriani here, and he says this. Since Western Christians generally live in times of relative ease, we might feel that Peter's warnings have no purchase here. Western believers might face mild mockery or dismissive remarks. Our arguments might not be taken seriously, and our campus ministries might lose the right to meet on campus while the gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual club doesn't. But this is marginalization, not red-blooded persecution. Of course, there's no guarantee that this peace will last. Still, we don't feel the need for counsel about trials and sufferings in easier days. Whatever hostility Western believers endure, as I write, it barely compares to the troubles of believers in Rome in Peter's day. He also says, whenever we suffer for actions beyond our control, we taste the life of the first Christians who suffered, even if they did no wrong. Think of that. Think of when we suffer for things we had nothing to do with. Right? We're still sinners. We still have our indwelling sin. But just think, outside of anything we have done, and suffering comes our way. By way of uh, the world not liking us, uh, hating us. He says, uh, he continues, They suffered because they did something right. They repented of the follies of pagan polytheism. So even if our experience is far from Peter's, we can hear his message for those who suffer unjustly. So we are to rejoice now if we suffer for Christ's sake. Then comes the purpose clause in verse 13. So that. So but to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. As long as we live in this fallen world, we will suffer and expect it and not be surprised by it. But then we have the revelation of his glory, the second coming of Christ. We see uh, the same thing in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 7. Similar words in chapter 1, verse 13. Rejoice in present sufferings so that you will rejoice when Christ returns. Not to grumble, complain, get angry, stay frustrated. But if we suffer because of Christ or knowing Christ, we are to rejoice. Verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Consider that, Christian. If you are revi- have been reviled this past week because of Christ, you are blessed. If you are reviled this upcoming week because of Christ, because of being a Christian, because of following him, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 
Who's the spirit of glory and of God that rests upon you? That's the Holy Spirit. Reviled, you will be blessed. Reviled, what is this? Insulted, mocked because of allegiance to Jesus Christ? You are blessed. This word reviled or insulted, this helps us understand what this fiery ordeal is all about in verse 12. If we consider the context. It had not yet reached the point of being physically uh, harmed, yet that was on the horizon, which we may, may be able to relate to at some point. But the main point of this verse is you are indeed blessed if you are reviled. Peter may have been recalling what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you because of my name. The blessing is the presence of God upon your life. The spirit of glory, that phrase comes from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 through 3. I'm not going to read that, but you can. But not right now. The spirit that was upon Jesus is also upon all Christians. Reviled for the name of Christ, blessed, the Spirit is upon you in your suffering, which is far better than to slide back into the ways of the pagan world. Oftentimes, we're faced with a decision, okay, if I do this, if I stand for Christ here, this is going to bring suffering on my life. Or if I just maybe fudge a little bit here, this will bring no suffering at all. What will we do? When that fork in the road comes, blessed if you are reviled for the name of Christ. Verse 15 clears this up for us. Make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. We've covered this uh, weeks ago, a couple of weeks, murderer, right? I don't think anyone in here, maybe not, has killed anyone physically, stabbed someone, shot someone. Maybe someone has. If so, I'm not aware of it. But we've all in here murdered someone in our hearts, been angry with them without just cause, and murdered them. Therefore, we would all be guilty as murderers. (coughs) Make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer. By application for us, I mean, Peter here, I believe, is speaking of actual murdering or, or thievery, which we are all guilty of as well on some level, or an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he should not be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. So let's look at this in a little bit more detail. Do not suffer as an unrepentant sinner for sin. Let us not suffer for things of being rude and disrespectful even, or worse, as a murderer or a thief. Not all sufferings qualify for blessing from God and joy in Him. Right? We do evil and we say, oh, this is, and I'm suffering now because I did it for Christ. No, you're suffering because you got consequences, because you sinned. People suffer when they do evil. Christians suffer when they do evil, when they sin. We know we're still prone to our sinful ways, and consequences follow, and suffering follow when we obey uh, the flesh rather than obey God. Look at the blatant examples listed. Murder or thievery. Both of these, as I just mentioned, are found in the Ten Commandments. We're being, once again, 
this is being brought before our eyes. It has an evangel in evangelism 101. It has on Wednesday nights. And here we are once again. Not by accident. Murder is condemned, as well as murder of the heart. Stealing, obviously, is condemned. What is this evildoer? Evildoer. Well, other translations say it's a, a criminal or a wrongdoer. Uh, according to Tom Schreiner, some evidence suggests that this word could mean a sorcerer or a magician. So we would consider that in our context today of those who uh, engage with um, witchcraft and things like that, if that indeed was what this word means. Evildoer or a troublesome meddler, a mischief maker. Some of us are former mischief makers. Right? We're remembered for those kind of things. Or schemers. I remember a friend of mine, old friend of mine, he was upset. His name was Glenn. He was upset when I got saved because I was no longer making scheming here and scheming there and doing all these things and setting all these things up. What happened to you? This is what you used to be. It's not me anymore. I tried sharing the gospel with him one time in Sports Authority, out of all places. I ran into him there, and he was angry. And he said, you, you, know, better, you better get away from me, because he was like ready to hit me. <clears throat> Meddler, mischief maker, a busybody, pests, an overseer of another's affairs. And let's, this, this can get into, this is very practical here. Because we think of uh, meddler, okay, what does this mean? Mischief maker, busybody, pest, more, more uh, exegetical work here. An overseer of another's affairs, an interferer, a schemer, one who noses into things, offering unwanted opinions. You ever heard of any of the unwanted opinions before? Oh, man. I just have to give you my opinion. Well, I didn't ask for it. Speaking when they should remain quiet. That's Christian maturity, is when you know when to not say anything. When you know it's time to keep my mouth closed. I got my teeth, I can grit them. I got my lips, boom. That shows maturity. We are to avoid these. Avoid criminal activities that, mean, that meant punishment. And you break the law, expect consequences, right? Some of us have had that in our past. Doriani says, God does not bless, listen to this, God does not bless tactless behavior. And it is not persecution when obnoxious acts earn wrath. So if I'm out in the street or I'm going down wherever the supermarket or whatever and I'm acting obnoxious or wherever we go and I'm acting tactless and I'm just being a fool and something happens to me because of that, that's my fault. I don't call cry persecution because of that. Like people do so easily today. Right? 
for other things, though. There is a time for silence. Even Jesus, when he stood there, when he was on this mock trial, and they were interrogating him, John 19, verse 9, he kept silent. So we're not to suffer as an evildoer, or a murderer, or a thief, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed. So here we just went into that hole. Now we're coming out of it. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Just as the term Puritan was used as a slur, so is the word Christian. It can be. In Peter's time, Christians were arrested, put to trial, and even killed for their faith. What's the worst that we get so far? Verbal insults, mostly. Right? I mentioned a couple this morning, Jesus freak or a Bible thumper. We are to count such insults as an honor when we suffer for being a Christian. We are suffering for Christ's name when the world is against us. Again, it's not by accident, but it's by God's providence. I believe that we are in this text and finishing up in John chapter 16. Verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now this text here, this can sound really scary. Uh, there's this older lady who said this the other day, and she said it with such a voice, judgment begins with the household of God. It really kind of freaked me out. But we must ask some, under, some questions to understand this text. Where is Peter getting this from, first off? Well, there's two sections of Scripture. We're not going to go to either one of them, but you can do this in your homework to make sure that I was accurate on this. Ezekiel 9 and Malachi chapter 3, which is a very interesting chapter. Read Malachi chapter 3. I'd encourage you to read that. Last book of the Bible, right? Malachi, yep. Who is the household of God? So where is Peter getting this from? He's, he's getting it from the Old Testament, specifically Ezekiel or Malachi. Who is the household of God is another question. Well, that would be, in our context, we would say, obviously this means has to do with Christians. Why would an unbeliever be in the household of God? What is the context? Again, believers suffering. Believers going through persecution, suffering for the name of Christ. Household of God, Christians. Context is suffering. So what is this judgment? What is this judgment? Well, this judgment must be speaking of a refining and purification. Because the household of God, we are no longer under condemnation. So it is the final judgment. But one that begins now in this age. Let me see if I can. <clears throat> All right, let me read this for you. It's a little lengthy. You don't fall asleep or anything. Another quote from Tom Schreiner, but this is important. The judgment begins with us, which means that it commences with Christians. In the present age, believers experience suffering, and this is the purifying judgment that begins with believers. Peter proceeded to argue from the lesser to the greater. If even those who are going to be saved are purified and judged by the suffering, then the outcome or result of those who reject the gospel will surely be a greater punishment. Unbelievers are described here as those who do not obey the gospel of God. We see that right there in the text. You see that 17? Peter could have 
written about judgment falling on those who disobeyed the gospel. But here he wanted to focus on the failure to obey, for all unbelief leads to disobedience. On three other occasions, those who will be judged or are being judged are described as disobeying. And such, disobedience is described as disobedience to the word, and the word in these texts is simply another expression for the gospel. Believers, on the other hand, are characterized by obedience, and we see this in, uh, there's all kinds of texts in 1 Peter he references here. Peter did not specify what judgment awaits unbelievers, but he already had indicated in chapter 4, verse 5, that they await final judgment. So, we should also observe that the order of Malachi 3 is preserved here. When the Lord comes to his temple, he refines and purifies his people, right? His people. But those who are unrepentant sinners will be destroyed. So with all of that said, in the present age, that's the end quote for Tom Schreiner, in the present age, this is a purifying process. And we see that bleed over in the context of a church, when suffering comes, God removes the chaff, God removes the goat at time, God removes the false. Eschatologically speaking, as Christians, we will be judged as well. Matthew 25. Let's go. They ask you, let's go to Matthew, let's go to Matthew 7 first. Matthew 7 first, let's look at some of the most terrifying words in Scripture before we go to Matthew 25. Matthew chapter 7, and then we'll go to Matthew chapter 25. Okay, so eschatologically speaking, everyone stands before God. Everyone will stand and and will be judged. Matthew chapter 7. Jesus speaking, verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, and the bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire so that you will know them by their fruits. Not every, here's, the, here's these words I was referencing. Many of you are familiar with this. This is terrifying. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is an emphatic, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says that will, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Those who truly are of his will enter. Many will say to me in that day, Here's the, here it is again, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not uh, in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? In summarization, did we not do all of these things and say that we were doing them for you? And Jesus will say that I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Some frightening words for us on this Sunday evening, but words to remember. Matthew chapter 25. 
Matthew 25. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him. Here it is, this judgment. And He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right, those who are his, and the goats he will put on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There we have, again, eschatologically speaking, those, all of, everyone who will stand before God. As believers, God will examine us when we stand before him and we will give an account on that last day when we stand before him. As Paul tells us, I read this for us as well, 2 Corinthians, you can write it down. I'm going to turn there quick and reference it. I'm going to go real quick. You can't keep up. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we all must be fe- appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This is speaking of believers here. We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And verse 9, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Look at verse 11. Remember this text? Recently, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We persuade men. So as Christians, we ought not to be alarmed on the one hand, for we stand in Christ, but we are, on the other hand, to press on as we stand in Christ. Verse 18 of uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. And if it is, well, let's read verse 17 once again. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? This is a quote from Proverbs. Judgment is a serious thing. It's a serious thing for for the people of God. How much more for those who reject Jesus Christ. What is this difficulty? Is it difficult for man to be saved in his own effort? No, it is impossible for man to be saved with his effort. It's only possible with God. Is it difficult for God to save one? No. The text is saying the righteous are saved with difficulty. Again, it goes back to Tribulation. It goes back to difficulties in the Christian life. There are difficulties. It is hard for the believer. The gate is narrow. The way is narrow. Our faith is tested. Our faith is proven. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Verse 19. Therefore, those 
also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And there's that section of scripture again, that phrase, entrusting our souls to a faithful creator. We as Christians, that's who we entrust our souls to. We ought to never lose sight of an eternal perspective that God is the final judge. We will all stand before him and give an account. Here, now, the suffering according to the will of God, we share in the sufferings of Christ. When we suffer as a Christian, we share in the sufferings of Christ. So we ought to be sure that when we are suffering, we are being reviled or insulted, it's for being a Christian, not for being an evildoer. And in all of this, in everything we've covered thus far, through all the four chapters, and we end on verse 19, entrusting our lives to God, committing ourselves to our faithful Creator. We are entrusting ourselves to Him who is faithful. Our souls are His, and we entrust Him with our very souls. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we have been confronted once again with your text, with the road that we have, that we are on, understanding that there's fiery ordeals, understanding that there's a purification, understanding and, and realizing and studying that sanctification at times is messy, it is hard, and it hurts but you continue to guide us, you continue to direct us, you continue to bandage our wounds, you provide the oil that we need, the balm when we need it, O Lord. You're a God who guides us in your various providences, even with the various books we are studying at this local church during this time, even as Brother Al pinched hit on Wednesday night. And, and taught on things that ministered to us that went right along in parallel with things that may be going on in our lives. You're so good to us. You are a faithful God. We entrust our souls to you, O Lord. Let us truly cultivate what that means. This world wants us to trust in it in many ways, shapes, and forms. Even those who are there with good motives, as they would think, who are trying to help people, maybe want us to entrust in some cause that has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ or Christianity. God, let us not get our eye off the ball, as it were. Let us keep our eyes on the cross, entrusting our souls to you each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.